Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. And we're going to talk about bacteriophages, you know, the, the viruses that prey upon bacteria. And she calls them bacteriophages. So tomato, tomato, it's okay. Thanks for having me, Richard. Tell me about your research and like your history. How did you get into studying bacteriophages? Yes, well, I'm a microbiologist, but I'm really interested in perinatal microbiology, so looking at pregnancy and early life and the sort of microbes that are involved in that stage and really looking at infection and how we can sort of modify the outcomes for mothers and their babies. So I think really for me, I really love babies, but I also love microbes and it seems like a bit of a, an odd mix, but for me it really it combines both of those passions, I guess. So are you studying uh, what microbe transmission from mother to baby? Or like what, you know, how did these two come together? So I've um, really been looking at, in particular, preterm birth. So when babies are born too early, also focusing more so on group B streptococcus or streptococcus agalactiae. And this is a bacteria that uh, is the leading cause of neonatal um, morbidity and mortality. So really looking at the epidemiology and how the GBS itself, so the bacterium changes in terms of their capsule type and the different factors of the bacteria depending on the region. So we did a study looking in Western Australia, but also comparing that globally um, because this is a really big issue for babies. Well, all right. So what do you mean? Where, where does this bacteria go and what does it cause? How does it interact with the mothers and babies? So mothers are screened because of this interaction. So mothers are screened for group B strep. So during pregnancy, they'll have a swab collected. So this is a vaginal and rectal swab. And this is really due to the transmission being usually during that natural birth process. So when the baby passes through the birth canal, they come in contact with group B strep if a mother is colonised. Some babies are colonised, but they're healthy but other babies can actually become infected and this can cause meningitis, sepsis, pneumonia and all sorts of other factors. So it can be quite nasty, but it's that transmission process during birth that is why what's led to this screening program during pregnancy to prevent that. What will they do? They'll give antibiotics to the baby or to the mother or will they say go C-section instead? Like what's the protocol? So there's a few different ways. So the screening process can be either a risk-based approach, which is um, seen in some countries like the UK, but in America and Australia, they do a culture-based test. So if a mother's screened for GBS and is positive, she'll actually receive antibiotics just before birth, so a minimum of four hours before birth. Um, and this is meant to prevent that transmission process, but also limit the amount of antibiotic exposure to the baby as well. 
Okay, so they'll give antibiotics to the mother, what, a few hours before birth? And what does that do? Is it a broad spectrum? I mean, I, I would think it would change the entire set of microbes that the baby would get through natural birth. Yeah, so the idea is to have it closer to birth to limit that, but we question what impact that is having, obviously, because if it's you know knocking out the GBS, it's obviously knocking out a lot of other things too. So antibiotics, we know even the narrow-spectrum antibiotics still knock out a lot of different bacteria. And that's sort of where my research has developed into looking at alternatives to antibiotics and also what impact, you know, so that the microbiome has early life. So again, you're trying to reduce the incidence of this one microbe, but experimentally what's been seen, like have swabs been collected and cultured and, you know, a shotgun sequencing done or at least 16S to look at, let's say, the vaginal fluid to see you know, what happened to the microbial profile after administration of the antibiotics? Yeah, there have been a few studies looking at the effect of this sort of, they call it intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis. So that's that antibiotic use just before birth. So it has been shown to knock down uh, a lot of the good bacteria. So lactobacillus bifidobacteria, and then Bringing it all into context, they've been looking at also the effects afterwards. So obviously depends on if the baby's breastfed and a number of other factors after that process. But in that initial stage, there has been shown to be a knockdown of those beneficial bacteria. So it is having an effect. We're now just starting to, with studies recently, we're seeing the elucidation of what that means sort of more long term. Um, But that's really in the early stages. But yeah, limiting antibiotics would be ideal. So around 10 to 30% of pregnant women will actually be colonised with GBS. And depending on the screening approach, that means, you know, 10 to 30% of all pregnant women are receiving antibiotics, which is quite a, a large number of the population. So what makes the difference between a mother being colonised by this bacteria and it causing a problem in the baby versus not? Is it that certain phages are present that, you know, have given certain uh, genetic material to the bacteria like Vibrio to turn them pathogenic or like what's the reason? There's a few different sort of hypotheses. So a lot of it is just been looking at sort of host responses and, you know, perhaps it's an issue in terms of the the host being a, a host in this sense, being the human and the, you know, the different immune responses. Uh, a lot of my work is really focused on the bacteria itself, so GBS and what different virulence factors it has. So understanding that a little bit more. But in terms of bacteriophage conferring any virulence so far, haven't really, to my knowledge, haven't seen anything in terms of like that Vibrio cholera sort of story. We're actually really interested to know if we could use bacteriophage as um, a preventative measure and try and knock out the GBS in a more specific way. Well, again, I mean, what's different about in culture? Do they look different? Do they have uh, different like metabolomics or transcriptomics? Like, you know, if they're there, if it's going to be a problem or not. Are they interacting with other type bacteria in the mix? There's got to be some determination of, okay, the person's colonized. Is it a problem or is it not? Yeah, well, that's quite interesting. You'd think so. So there are more in terms of the looking at whole genome sequencing found that there are certain sequence types that hypervirulent. So you'll see they're more likely to cause disease rather than just be a colonizer per se. So that's definitely a factor. But also on the other hand, there's always that sort of 
double-edged sword of where you see all different types of GBS. So we, a, a big focus has been on the capsular type so or serotype and people have sort of been looking for that gold bullet, the silver bullet sort of angle of seeing, okay, which capsular type do we need to look out for and which should we be treating versus just being a colonizer. But there have been cases of disease for all capsular types. So it's a little bit tricky in that sense, but overall there are sequence type 17 and capsular type 3 are known to be more so associated with invasive disease and virulence. But because GBS can cause disease in any angle, it's an opportunistic pathogen. It's been treated, you know, widespread. Since you're focused on bacteriophage, I mean, have you been able to evaluate what I call the phageome, you know, all the associated phages with this particular bacteria? And if you look at it in different contexts, like, you know, let's say there was a baby born that, you know, that was infected, did get very sick, you know, has the uh, mother been able to, was she cultured, was the baby cultured? And if you look at, you know, if you're able to see the phages that are surrounding that particular bacteria versus in other conditions where it's not infectious, maybe that would give you an idea of what's going on, at least from that perspective. That's really interesting. So we've been interested in looking at the prophage for GBS. More so, I think it's interesting that term phageome. For me, I've been quite interested in understanding what are the the phage that are present during pregnancy. So it's sort of external to this idea of the, the prophage that are integrated within the bacteria but more so what's external and what's happening in that environment. Could we be protected by phage that in the vaginal tract and is that conferred to the baby and that sort of thing? I'm interested in that perspective as well, but I think there's definitely room to look at the the prophages within GBS. It's just that annotations at the moment are not really great in that sense. So in terms of the number of annotated genes for bacteriophages are really not at the standard of a bacteria, for example, but definitely something we're working on. What about longitudinal looks? A set of pregnant women that agree to have swabs, let's say once a month for each month of their pregnancy. And then how does the microbiome, the vaginal microbiome change as they near birth? And then through birth, you know, maybe right after and then maybe a month after. That might be really interesting. And from there, if you see changes in the dominant bacteria in that part of the microbiome, maybe that gives you a hint as to what else is going on. Yeah, I think that's a really good approach. And I think ideally we'd love to take a lot of multiple site samples as well, because we know even though this is the point um, of interest in terms of the transmission, the mode of transmission, also interested in seeing what else is happening elsewhere in the body. But we personally haven't done that at the moment. We've done follow-up two time points of the swabs in terms of looking at colonization, but this has sort of been more focused on just looking at GBS and not the surrounding bacteria initially. But we're we're interested in doing that as well. You know, I liken it to a job center, like in the gut different types of bacteria can serve the same jobs and maybe produce the same metabolites and consume the right ones. And, you know, there's a whole network of things going on. So uh, vaginally, I'm sure the same thing happens. You know, has anyone looked at the metabolomics of the microbiome there? What are they producing? What's being consumed? Is this particular microbe a, a primary producer of something that downstream other bacteria use or vice versa? 
you know, I mean, there's a lot to, uh, to look at in terms of its function. And then that would maybe give you a hint as to, you know, what's changed. Maybe it would lead to a probiotic that's inserted, you know, by pregnant women if they're in danger of, um, of this microbe, maybe starting month six. I'm just making this up, but perhaps that would help them so they could have a healthy birth. Yeah, so they're actually, that's interesting that you mentioned probiotics. So that has been looked at a fair bit because obviously in this sort of field, there's a big um, notion about that dysbiosis and especially what people call bacterial vaginosis. And it's really quite complex because also based on, on the woman, it's really quite different. The, the bacterial composition is really quite different. So what would seem very dysbiotic for one woman might seem is actually the normal and healthy microbiome of the other woman. So it's interesting from that perspective. And the probiotic factor has been looked at in terms of uh, relating to GBS because there are probiotics that have been shown to outcompete GBS. And this has more so been in vitro, but I know there have been a lot of studies trying to sort of elucidate that effect in vivo, but it can be a little bit tricky because you really do need to look at that overall microbiome composition. It can't just be, I'm giving this and this, you know, is the, is the impact of just reduction of GBS. It's really what's happening in the entire microbiome community of that site. So I think especially now we're seeing a lot of studies coming out um, in quick succession with, you know, obviously the availability of like metagenomic, you know, shotgun metagenomics and, you know, the 16S. So I think the quality of our data is getting much better. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, no, I would, I would hope so because yeah, the reductionist approach is, that's why I think it's important to do that longitudinal look because you know, what if GBS rises to prevalence all of a sudden in months eight or nine, but nothing really happens until then? What if it's present the whole time? What if it's present and there's a sudden shift of regime at a certain point in the pregnancy? You know, maybe that data would be really helpful in, uh, in treating people because, you know, antibiotics is one level of uh, interference, but if they would switch people from natural birth to C-section, I mean, that's a whole huge, I don't know if they would do that, but that's the big, big interference, maybe for a valid reason or no valid reason. I don't know. Yes, that sense of the longitudinal. So we did two time points of screening. And with GBS, it's also, it's, it's a bit of a tricky one because there has been that sense of transiency. So at one time point early in the pregnancy, it might be colonised, but then you might lose that colonisation. We found the transiency, so either losing or gaining between the two time points in, you know, second and third trimester, we found there was about 10% of our, our participants had lost or gained GBS during that time. So I guess, you know, 10% is, could be considered a lot, but in general, from the overall sort of literature around GBS, it's been really, the screening has been pushed to later in pregnancy to be more reliable in the sense of screening closer to the delivery date so that you're more confident that, you know, that woman is colonized. But yeah, we found 10% of women showed that transiency, but yeah, 90% remain colonized or not colonized. So I think that sort of feeds into that story of like what is happening during that time and are some women more likely to be 
consistent colonizers or consistently not colonized? And why is that in terms of the, the interactions with the other um, microbes in, in that space? Well, what about uh, sequencing the father? You know, I mean, you, there's no vaginal microbiome, but it would at least be a gut microbiome. Perhaps there'll be clues there. If the father, you know, is a certain way, then that makes the mother that way. And if they're not, they're not. There may be clues there as well. Yeah, yeah. So there has been a study that has looked at that. People are reluctant to say that there's sort of sexual transmission of GBS, but I believe that study uh, found that they have looked at the fathers as well, but I think the outcome sort of suggested that it didn't impact it significantly in terms of the colonisation, like reseeding colonisation in that sense. And then there's breastfeeding. Breastfeeding typically occurs, you know, day of birth is the start of it, let's say. Um, how does that affect the people that have been colonised but still gave birth, you know, without antibiotic? Would they normally, you know, do they get sick more often if there's no breastfeeding or less often? You know, that also would be a factor too. Because with the breast milk, again, it's going to push certain bacteria to take up residence in the gut and residence in the entire body of the baby. So that may mitigate this GBS prevalence or pathogenicity. I don't know. Yeah, so breastfeeding has been shown to sort of have a play a protective role in those babies that are breastfed seem to, even if they have received, if the mother has received antibiotics um, during pregnancy, breast milk has shown to sort of stabilise those gut microbiome. So it's definitely a positive in terms of breastfeeding versus formula feeding. But also some studies have also shown that GBS can be transmitted through breast milk and so that really needs more data to sort of look into that and we're also interested in breast milk is really antimicrobial in the sense of there are a lot of different factors in there that can um, actually protect from GBS so we're understanding what's going on there the fact that one woman might be able to be colonized in the breast milk might also actually link back to the colonization in the vagina as well so Looking at, I think it's a complex mix of the bacteria and also the other microbes in the environment, but also the human host as well, and an interplay of that, which obviously a lot of things have that. But yeah, understanding that a little bit more in terms of like from the microbial perspective um, is really where we, where we need to focus. Well, so you said at the beginning that you study phages. How does that play into this? What's your study looking at? Yeah, so I'm really interested in looking at, obviously, with group B strep being a single species that we're actually, you know, contributing for this widespread antibiotic use, we were interested in whether we could actually target in a specific way using phages to eradicate GBS. So I've just been interested in looking for candidate phages for therapy and also understanding what our natural exposure to phages during pregnancy is as well. Oh, so you want to see if there's an overabundance of GBS. If you get the right phage and you do some phage therapy, you may not have to have antibiotics. And this is more targeted. It could knock down the numbers of GBS to the point where the pregnancy would be healthy and the baby would be unaffected. Yeah. So it's really from the perspective of reducing that antibiotic exposure and use sort of specifically in this case, because it's a single species and that's sort of the perfect scenario for phage therapy. So we'd be able to reduce that widespread antibiotic exposure during pregnancy, which also has knock-on effects for, you know, what that exposure means in terms of the microbiome 
disruption and also just for other organisms getting exposed to antibiotics, which, you know, sort of fuels that resistance cycle. Phage therapy, you know, everyone seems to say, oh, legend has it. In Eastern Europe, they've been doing it for a while, but there doesn't seem to be anything improved here in the U.S. And do you think that's going to be a fast track to getting results or phage therapy itself, maybe because it's not in widespread use, from what I know, do you think it's going to be harder to get any adoption of that, even if it does appear to work? Yeah, I mean, I think people always tell me that I'm choosing the hardest possible population, you know, with vulnerable patients such as mums and their babies. But I think it's quite interesting that we're, you know, we're quite happy to use antibiotics freely. So I think as soon as we get enough clinical trials data and really large studies, I think we could definitely be on the track to using phage therapy and that being sort of a new norm in conjunction with antibiotics. I think that it's definitely making track, especially in more recent years, the exponential growth in phage studies and what the findings are. So I think it's definitely not a short road, especially for the context I'm looking at, but it's definitely not impossible in that sense. Well, are you able to culture GBS? you know, in the lab in vitro. And then again, perhaps you'd be able to do, uh, you know, evaluate the phageome and make a lot of headway on it, at least, again, under the lab conditions, what's the phageome of GBS. And then if you looked at it and you, then you did it like, in, you know, in vivo, you took vaginal sample and looked at it there quickly, uh, you might be able to at least see the difference. I know there'd be a lot of other confounding material in there, but at least you could say is the material we found in the lab there as well, you know, the viral... Uh, RNA and DNA. So like at the moment, we've been focused on sort of isolating potential candidate phages and using our collection of our clinical GBS strains that we've collected from our studies to really screen for it so that it would be clinically relevant. So it actually would eradicate strains that we see circulating. But in the sense of the phageome, I think, I think that is a really critical point, especially for GBS and looking at the, the profage within GBS. So ideally, the perfect candidate phage would be what we call obligately lytic. So they only lyse the bacteria. They don't have the potential to integrate and form those profages within the bacteria. So GBS has only, in, in terms of the phages found against GBS, only uh, temperate or profage capable phages have been found for GBS, which make it a little bit tricky because we could have this case that's similar to what they find in Clostridium difficile where no obligately lytic phage have been found. So in that sense, we also need to be thinking about that possibility and what that means for therapy in terms of phage therapy as well. But just because a phage isn't lytic doesn't mean that it may not be useful. You know, the phage being latent or prophage that sits inside of the GPS, again, may confer some ability to it that makes it not pathogenic or maybe changes its metabolism, you know, and and metabolome so that it doesn't produce whatever may be produced to cause, uh, you know, pathogenesis. Probably wouldn't close the door on that just because, again, it's not killing them. Maybe it's uh, changing them dramatically in another way. And I know it's not like Vibrio, but because that exists, that easily could exist in other bacteria, just in ways we don't know how it affects them. I completely agree. In that traditional sense of the ideal candidates, that's a point of 
contention for GBS, but I totally agree that it does not mean that, yeah, we can't utilise this and make, I, I think it's a good point that you mentioned, the changes that the prophage can sort of induce. And sometimes we see, obviously not in the cholera sense where it's increasing the virulence, but in this case, it could actually um, reduce virulence, but we don't have um, enough data on that currently. But I think it's a really interesting point. And also, you know, how can we induce those phage? And that in another sense is also eradicating the GBS as well. So there's a few different angles we can look at with this. And I think it's an exciting area because there's so many different angles you can take with this. Yeah, I mean, you know, you alluded to the fact that there's not just one particular kind of GBS. It's like E. coli, you know. If someone has E. coli in them, there can be hundreds of thousands of different types. And we don't really know how they differ. So same thing with GBS, like unless it's looked at and seen its action, its metabolites, its transcriptomics, in all these different uh, environments, you know, you may be fooling yourself if you find like a phage that is lytic if it's in certain conditions, but it's a prophage in other conditions. Yeah. And especially with genome annotations at the moment. So obviously we look for those genes that you would associate with lysogeny and, you know, being temperate phage, but there are so many hypothetical genes that we really don't know the full story yet. What do you see as, uh, you know, ahead for your research over the next, you know, couple of years? Over the next few years, I'm really looking at sort of the bigger picture in that sense of the natural exposure to phages and other microbes. So we're doing um, shotgun metagenomics of amniotic fluid and seeing, you know, what is in the amniotic fluid, which is also sort of a contentious issue in terms of there being a lot of studies showing low biomass, but there has been a study showing that phages were present in the amniotic fluid. So we're doing a really robust and well-controlled study to assess, are we exposed to bacteriophages before birth and does this confer any protection later later in life and looking at you know the impact in terms of group B strep in that case. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.